Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about the first lady of the black press, Ethel Payne. And Caroline, this was personally such a fascinating and also at times horrifying and disconcerting topic to dig into, partially because you and I were journalism majors in college. That's how we met. But not surprisingly, considering all the factors we're going to talk about in today's episode, we never heard the name Ethel Payne in any of our J school classes. Yeah, because by and large, the black press as a whole was pretty much invisible to white readership. So it really ran parallel to the white press starting really before the Civil War and petering out in its strength and numbers in the mid-60s and 70s. And as you said, Caroline, it was invisible to the white population back then. But in a lot of ways, too, that's still the case today in terms of the history and influence of the black press. I mean, it was so influential in the civil rights movement even happening and also in politically enfranchising black communities around the nation and really making them a political force. And Ethel Payne is one of the shining stars who comes in toward the end of the black press as sort of an industrial influence and When she died, just to give you listeners an idea of how influential she was, but at the same time, how much like racism in the United States uh, was so overwhelmingly powerful in the sense of holding people back as well. When she died, a Washington Post editorial noted, had Ethel Payne not been black, she certainly would have been one of the most recognized journalists in American society. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, this this woman was amazing. She is amazing. And her legacy is incredible. But the thing is, so few people just in mainstream society know about her and the incredible influence she had over the civil rights movement. Yeah. And so in today's podcast, we're going to talk about Ethel Payne, of course, But first, we want to lay some groundwork to position her within this history of the black press in the United States and focusing in on the women who helped build that. And as we're going through this, I think it's important to keep in mind all of the social movements that were happening and being promoted within these newspapers As well. And I'm talking about suffrage and when leading up to civil rights and like all of all these political issues that we're still talking about so much even today Mm -hmm. with the Black Lives Matter movement um, and how these black presses were so crucial for enfranchising this people who were otherwise just cut off in very literal ways that we're going to talk about in terms of. The media. Yeah, because it's not like the white press was going to be covering civil rights. It really took people like Ethel Payne pushing to get this stuff covered. 
So let's start in 1827. This is the same year that slavery was abolished in New York State. And you have two freed black men, John Russworm and Samuel Cornish, who launched the weekly paper Freedom's Journal. And this is the first black owned and operated paper in the United States. And it was started, the motivation behind it, it was started to counter the racism of the mainstream press. And Freedom's Journal was the paper of record for the 300,000 free blacks living in the North. And it advocated abolition, anti-lynching, voting rights, political rights, and the possibility of African repatriation as well. So they're talking about all of these issues. And it's it's notable, too, that it's the paper of record because for much of, obviously, the, you know, the 19th and 20th centuries, white papers wouldn't even cover black obituaries. Right. Yeah, that's that that's a huge issue that you see mentioned again and again when you read about the black press and and racism of this era that the bread and butter of newspapers is essentially the ads. And that includes obituaries. You have to pay to put your obituary in the paper. And so you've got the obituaries and classifieds and just regular advertisements of black families and, and wedding announcements and, and all sorts of things like that, that white papers just wouldn't run. And you have black newspapers who are not only delivering the news to their communities, but also serving as a way to deliver that information as well. So jumping back into our timeline, if we hop to 1852, the Fugitive Slave Acts were passed a couple years prior in the United States. And with the Fugitive Slave Acts, it became legal for freed slaves or escaped slaves to be arrested if they crossed state lines and sent without any kind of questioning whatsoever back to slave owners. So in 1852, Marianne Shad Carey, who had emigrated to Canada because of the Fugitive Slave Acts, became a spokesperson and editor of the pro-emigration provincial freeman, encouraging other African-Americans to hightail it up north. Yeah. And just briefly, Marianne Shad Carey, if you're not familiar with her, is an incredible person. She was the first woman at Howard University Law School, but she couldn't graduate because Washington, D.C. did not admit women to the bar. So she had to go back 10 years later and get her degree at the age of 60. So just keep that in mind. She's an impressive lady. She was also a lady ahead of her time. I mean, she argued for suffrage rights under the 14th Amendment and linked the importance of women's suffrage to female labor and entrepreneurship. Yeah, I mean, and it's with issues like that, the female labor and entrepreneurship, where we start to see how white suffrage and all of those conversations that we've had around that in past episodes overlooks issues relevant to women of color because labor is huge for women of color and is a bigger issue than it is for often whiter, wealthier women involved in the suffrage movement. But when we get to 1860, at the start of the Civil War, there were already more than 40 black-owned newspapers throughout the United States. 
And 30 years later, in 1890, suffrage and abolition leader Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin joins those ranks. She launches the Women's Era, which is the first newspaper published and written by and for black women. And four years later, in 1894, by the way, uh, Ruffin would go on to organize the Women's Era Club, which was a group specifically meant to advocate on behalf of black women. And to offer a little broader context to the importance of that, This was happening post-suffrage movement schism after black men were enfranchised and given the right to vote, but female suffrage was not granted. So you have that split where Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton start to align themselves with the more uh, racist supporters who are not so keen on integrating women of color in their cause. And then you have, in response, women like Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin and others starting the women's, the black women's club movement, uh, organizing within their communities for community uplift, basically saying, listen, if you, if you, oh, y'all aren't going to help us, we're going to help ourselves. We've been doing this. And someone else who was highly instrumental in that movement was Ida B for Badass <laughs> Wells, who's best known as an anti-lynching journalist. Um, in 1893, she kicked off her anti-lynching campaign after her paper, the Memphis Free Speech, closed following a white mob vandalizing it in retaliation for an article that she wrote denouncing the lynching of three black Memphis men. And she and Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin would later come together through the women's club movement because Ida B. Wells would like go around and visit all these women's clubs and help start them. And they would later help form uh, a larger suffrage organization focused solely on women of color. And in 1905, we get a newspaper that we will revisit more a little bit later, but we get the Chicago Defender. And it really urged blacks in the South to move north as part of what's called the Great Migration. And it was massively influential in the civil rights movement. So then from 1912 to 1951, a woman named Charlotta Bass serves as the publisher of the California Eagle, which, by the way, it was formerly known as the owl. And why would you change the name of a newspaper from the owl to a California Eagle? I'm just saying the owl. That's cool. That's the. I guess I like owls. Well, owls, owls can turn their heads really far and see things, which is great. And but eagles are like, oh, we're I'm an aggressive eagle. I've got my talents. I'm going to rip up this newspaper. See, I I don't it's it's (laughs) not meshing in my brain. Um, But back to Bass, uh, she used the paper as a platform to denounce racist imagery in the media. She particularly attacked Birth of a Nation. They also attacked issues that sound very familiar today. Police brutality, discriminatory hiring practices, housing discrimination, even in the face of death threats and FBI surveillance. Yeah, I mean, you could be talking about the Black Lives Matter movement in that. It's absolutely still relevant. Uh, But fun fact, uh, in 1952, so the year after she stepped down as publisher of The Eagle, she became the first African-American woman to run for national office as the vice presidential candidate on the Progressive Party ticket. And I also wanted to mention how 
1925, a black paper, the Chicago Bee, was started, and it was 100% staffed by women. I don't have any deeper information <laughs> on that, but I saw that and was like, oh, we should mention that. Yeah. Right on, Chicago Bee. Now, one of our really smart listeners is going to write in, I predict, and tell us about the Chicago Bee, and I'm already looking forward to reading that letter in our listener mail segment in the future. Um, and it, just three years later in 1928, the Atlanta Daily World becomes the most successful black paper in the country, and it's the only one to publish daily instead of weekly. Yeah, and the weekly publication of most of these black newspapers is going to come back into play when we move into talking about the Washington Press Corps. But we want to reemphasize, too, why these papers mattered so much. I mean, we talked about how the white press just completely disregarded black communities, obviously perpetuating uh, racist myths about the black communities, um, even refusing, again, to publish obituaries. But the thing was, this these were such crucial resources, sharing uplifting stories about the black community and emerging stars like Lena Horne. Um, they also pointed readers to employers who didn't discriminate. It engaged these communities politically and exposed them to the writing of leading intellects like Langston Hughes, Marcus Garvey and Zora Neale Hurston. And there's been scholarship on how the black press in that way, speaking of like Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, laid the groundwork for the Harlem Renaissance as well. Yeah. And as you might imagine, when you provide a community with resources that they need and enjoy, that can translate into big business for the publishers who are running those papers. For instance, uh, Chicago Defenders publisher Robert S. Abbott became one of America's first black millionaires. So by the time we get to the World War II era, the black press is up and running. It is powerful within these black communities, but it's still operating separately from the quote-unquote mainstream read white media. And that was the case even in the heart of Washington. Yeah, it's crazy, although not terribly surprising to read about how even in the press corps, like of the White House press corps or the Capitol press corps, black reporters faced not even discrimination, yes, discrimination, but they just were barred from entry and participation. Uh, the white White House and congressional reporters had very little interest in inviting their black peers into the conversations that were happening. I mean, they just weren't prioritizing any type of civil rights issues whatsoever. Um, the local black papers were basically forced to rely on two wire services, the Associated Negro Press and the National Negro Publishers association. But for a lot of other information, they sort of had to get it almost secondhand. A lot of black papers would get their news from white newspapers and then spin it to then be relevant to their audiences. Yeah, I mean, because this is even before, obviously, the civil rights really starts picking up. I mean, but there were New Deal policies happening that they were otherwise uninformed about like any any political development. Imagine not having access to that information. We have it so instantaneously now, mm -hmm. thanks to Twitter. But in this era, this entire community was at least intentionally like and strategically 
cutoff. And we should say, too, that this background info is coming from a book, Reporting from Washington, A History on the Washington Press Corps. And here's the thing. The White House Correspondents Association, you know, that group that throws those hilarious dinners mm-hmm. every year, um, it and the presidential and congressional press conferences it controlled remained all white until 1944. But that was only because FDR's press secretary need a black policeman in the groin. And because of the fallout with that, FDR was like, "Okay, okay, okay. We got to we got to open things up a little bit. Let's let's integrate." So, it was the press, not the politicians, keeping members of the black press out of uh presidential and congressional press conferences. And along those same lines, the National Press Club only admitted white men. And, you know, we mentioned that a lot of times black papers and news agencies couldn't even get access to press releases. They relied on other news outlets to sort of hear what was going on in Washington. But they also relied on word of mouth. Secretaries and custodians around the Capitol would often share what they overheard, even, you know, snag a document or two off of the mimeograph machine. That means copy machine, you young people. Um, and journalists would also consult the quote unquote black cabinet of the highest ranking black officials at the time, including Mary McLeod Bethune. And in 1944, the Atlanta Daily World's Henry McAlpin becomes the first black journalist to cover a White House press conference. But he was still denied admission to the White House Correspondents Association. It wasn't until 1951 that Louis Laudier became the first black reporter admitted to the Correspondents Association. And P.S., that organization remains overwhelmingly white. As of 2013, only seven of the 53 regular correspondents were journalists of color, the Washington Post reported. Yeah, well, Laudier was considered a pretty safe choice to start this integration idea uh, because he was already a Department of Justice stenographer who was a freelance journalist. And so um, people in the government were like, oh, he's going to be pliable. We can just get him to do whatever we want. And so in their minds, that was a lot safer than getting Maybe an Ethel Payne, for instance, who might be more of a firecracker. So considering such an outright hostile and racist environment, how on earth could a woman of color break through the ranks? We're going to talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. Listen, people, you need to know how to cook at some point in your life. And with Blue Apron, not only do you end up knowing your way around the kitchen, but you get to cook healthier meals and save money instead of ordering all of that expensive takeout. For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers all the fresh ingredients you need to create home-cooked meals. Just follow the easy step-by-step instructions that come with pictures for people like me who are visual learners. Plus, each meal can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. No overwhelming trips to the grocery store. 
And no more sad takeout. No matter your dietary preferences, Blue Apron makes it a breeze to discover and prepare delicious dishes like pork chops over goat cheese polenta with English peas, pearl onions, and mint. Mm. Or if you prefer vegetarian fare, how about some Jamaican me crazy inspired curry chili with potatoes, collards, and roti bread? All recipes are between five to seven hundred calories per portion. And right now, you can get your first two meals for free at blueapron.com slash momstuff. That's blueapron.com slash momstuff. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So we keep teasing you about Ethel Payne. Like, no. when are we, when are we going to dig in to old Ethel here? We're just not. We're just going to keep <laughs> saying her name. <laughs> And then we're just going to hint at it. Yeah. Cliffhanger. Um, well, so we will talk about Ethel. We have so much to talk about. But first, we have to talk about a predecessor. So Ethel was almost the first black female reporter in the White House press corps. But her work builds right on top of that of one Alice Dunnigan. And Alice Dunnigan herself is a pretty impressive figure. Uh, with a lot of firsts. She was the first black female journalist accredited to the House and Senate press galleries, the White House, and the Supreme Court. And she was the first to travel with a U.S. president, that president being Harry Truman during his 1948 whistle-stop tour of 18 Western states. And I love the story where she was traveling. She was the only black woman, but there were also two black male reporters traveling with this whistle-stop tour. And Truman makes an unscheduled stop, I think, in Montana or Wyoming, one of those states. And uh, it, I think it was at night. It wasn't planned. She gets off the train because one of her colleagues back home had been like, you always need to get off the train, cover everything, keep your ear to the ground at all times. But her two uh, black male colleagues had no interest in getting off the train. But it just so happened that at this unscheduled stop, this was Truman's first time mentioning the importance of civil rights to America. And she got the story. But at the risk of losing her spot and the press corps, she refused to share her story with the rest of the pool, particularly her two black male colleagues, because she was like, oh, you're not going to get off the train? Well, then I clearly, as a woman, have had to work harder than you. I am. She she has this great quote about, um, you know, women have to work harder because they're not as secure in their positions and they have to prove themselves, which is obviously something we still talk about on the podcast today. Um, she's like, well, no, I'm I'm just going to write this story and submit it. Well, and one of those dudes, one of her colleagues was Louis Laudier. And he was not helpful to her either. He mm-hmm. was outright rude about um, her and Ethel Payne when Ethel Payne um, steps onto the scene. And they were outright competitors. Um, so for a little more about Dunnigan, though, she became the Washington bureau chief for the Associated Negro Press starting in 1947. And she was really the link between the African-American community and those early civil rights related issues developing in Washington. Like you said, I mean, she reported on Harry S. Truman mentioning this issue for the very first time. But even just getting there, getting on that train, ending up in what wherever it was, Wyoming or Montana, was not 
easy. And she recounts her experience in her 1974 autobiography, Alone Atop the Hill, in case you're looking for some new reading material. And her account of just initially trying to get into the press gallery mm-hmm. is exhausting. It is. But I mean, she was she was relentless. Oh, yeah. As well. She should be. I, I admire people who are relentless. Um, it is worth mentioning, though, the subcurrent of what's going on here. Yes, she was the Washington bureau chief for the ANP. However, this woman barely made enough to live on. Like she and Ethel Payne and many, many others had to work second jobs if they wanted to pursue their passion of journalism. So. Dunnigan was initially thwarted from getting accreditation to access the Capitol Press Gallery because they said only daily reporters were allowed. This was strategic, people, because so many black papers were either weekly or monthly. And so she's like, "Okay, I can't do that. Uh, She sought admittance to the periodicals gallery, but they wouldn't admit her because she didn't write for a magazine. Convenient. Well, and all of this happened after she submitted her application to get access to the press gallery. Didn't hear anything. Didn't hear anything. Finally started checking in. And she knew she was like, I had to be annoying at that point. Yeah. And she pestered them to the point that they finally were like, oh, so sorry. You work for a weekly. Yeah. Mm, that's too bad. So then when she goes back around a second time to periodicals, they're like, hmm. Sorry, it's not a magazine. (laughs) Well, so finally, the Senate Rules Committee has to hold a hearing and they ordered news agency reporters to be admitted. Yeah. So she gets in that way. I mean, it wasn't specifically like you have to let black reporters in. They're like, just, you know, news agency. Wink, wink. Um, But she definitely did not get any help from fellow female journalists in Washington at the time as the Women's National Press Club was whites only. Well, yeah, and they they had her over for dinner at one point, and she said that she was so intimidated that uh, she didn't speak the whole time, and so they, they didn't end up inviting her to be a member. Seven years later, though, once she had established herself and her name and her writing, they did invite her to be a member. And she basically talks about how, like, yeah, I knew it was BS. Like, this is crap. They wouldn't they wouldn't let me in seven years ago. But suddenly they're like, oh, okay." And she writes about how in her autobiography, she writes about how it for some reason took seven years for those liberal white women to finally get around to deciding that having a black woman, one black woman in their ranks was okay. That was a thing that kept astonishing me. Over and over again, reading this history of the Washington Press Corps, uh, partially, you know, because of our journalism training and <laughs> my own assumption that, like, journalists are more liberal, right? They're more open minded. You have to be objective. That's the whole thing, right? No, no, they were incredibly racist and exclusive back then, just like so many other people. No, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm not surprised whatsoever. I mean, I worked at an incredibly conservative newspaper for four years and reading the editorial pages, I was like, I I can't believe. So, no, I'm not surprised. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, and I know that, of course, there are like a bazillion 
conservative pundits and there's an entire news network devoted <laughs> to that kind of news. But I guess, Caroline, I'm just a little starry eyed. I'm a little starry eyed, a uh, cub reporter. <laughs> Hoping everybody's practicing some empathy. So hopping back into our timeline, it's 1948. Alice Dunnigan is making her name with so much dogged persistence in Washington. And where's Ethel Payne? What's she up to? Oh, old Ethel's on her way to Japan. Wait, what? Yeah. Um, I guess we should probably back up. Okay. And explain. We've teased you. We've hinted at Ethel's incredible life long enough. Yeah. And they're like, wait, what? She went, she's in Japan. <laughs> What's yes. happening? Okay. So backing up way up in 1911, Ethel Payne is born in Chicago. She's the granddaughter of slaves. Her dad works as a Pullman porter, but he dies when she's just 12 years old from a disease he contracted from handling dirty laundry on one of the trains. And up until this point, her mom had been a full-time stay-at-home mom uh, until her father's death, at which point her mom went and became a Latin teacher, like you do, just teaching Latin. Uh, but Ethel was really inspired by a lot of what her mother taught her. There was a lot of studying the Bible, but also a lot of studying literature. There's some Louisa May Alcott thrown in there. There's all sorts of reading that really inspired Ethel to be a word person. And she actually, though, dreamed of becoming a civil rights lawyer who'd work on behalf of the poor. But, and this should sound familiar to you if you've A, studied history, or B, listened to our episode on Polly Murray, but uh, Payne was denied admission to law school because of her race. So fast forward to 1927. Ethel Payne is hanging out, minding her own business, and she encounters outside of a tavern a group of 25 black men being arrested by white police officers and wanting to know what's going on, she goes up to one of the police officers and is like, hey, what what happened? Why are these men getting arrested? And how does he respond? He billy clubs her. (laughs) Well, yeah, don't forget, he first cusses her out. Right. Right. And then, yeah, this results in him hitting her. So she gets hauled off to jail along with all all of these dudes who are getting arrested. Um, she is released, but she basically says no and threatens the police that she is going to go to the press to tell them about all of this brutality unless they release all of the dudes along with her. And they do. Yeah. Yeah. She succeeded. Um, and not surprisingly, a year later in 1948, she's like, you know what? I'm going to peace out. Um, so she leaves home and her fiance. Ooh, bold move, Ethel, to become a hostess in Japan for the Army Special Services Club, um, organizing recreational activities and entertainment for African-American troops. Because keep in mind, the military is segregated at this time. Now, keep in mind, you know, Ethel's a person with these huge dreams, right? And a huge personality, too. I mean, she's not afraid to stand up even to the police. Right. But she had been working as a library clerk and was totally bored. And so that's when she like she's bored in her job. She's got these big dreams and a big personality. She's experienced police brutality and is like, it's time to go to Japan. As you do. Like you do. So in 1950, though, a reporter from the Chicago Defender, a guy named Alex Wilson, stops by Japan on his way to report on the Korean War. And they hit it off. And she ends up showing Wilson her diary. And he's like, this is 
sensational. This is the kind of information that we really need to be reporting back to the black community in the United States. So he asks her and she grants her permission for him to take the diary back to Chicago. And he ends up turning the diary entries into a front page news story about the experiences of black soldiers stationed in Japan. And it is not a pretty picture that she paints. She highlights not only segregation, but also this huge issue of black soldiers fathering children with Japanese women and then, of course, leaving. Um, and the story is huge. So huge, in fact, that in 1951, the Chicago Defender is like, listen, you're a good writer. You have an eye for news, obviously. Why don't you come back from Japan? We'll give you a full time job. Yeah. And so she looks at this opportunity and basically says, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to change the world that way, but that's not going to happen. Here's another way that I can fulfill what I perceive as my duty, my desire to change the world. (laughs) Pin instead of gavel. The pen is mightier than the gavel. I don't know. Or a, or a lawyer's briefcase. The pen is mightier than a matlock suit. Is that it? Yes, that's actually perfect. Um, and keep in mind though, that the Chicago Defender was actually banned in a lot of towns because its motto was that American race prejudice must be destroyed. I mean, I think that that's a basic important statement, but that was dangerous to a lot of people. So because it was banned in so many areas, you have those Pullman porters who would stash copies in their lockers and drop them at barbershops and churches along their southern routes and Her dad had been one of those people when he worked as a porter. He had been one of the people stashing those copies of the newspaper in his locker so that he could distribute them. Full circle. Legacy. Well, and speaking of mottos, too, I would like to note that the Chicago Defender's motto well complements her personal motto that she borrowed from Frederick Douglass. Agitate, agitate, agitate. Oh, yeah. There's no... There's no removing her personal views from her work. And I mean, this is critical to to who she is and what she accomplished. I mean, you know, people talk about agenda journalism and advocacy journalism. And Ethel Payne denied that she had a bias, but that whatever bias she had, it was for the truth. And I think that work like hers is still incredibly important. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah, and and I quickly want to mention, too, that she's hopping into her job at the Chicago Defender untrained. So I think this is around the time she starts taking some classes at Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism. So any Northwestern alums or students listening, shout out to y'all. Um, I, w- I would have loved to have been in a class with Ethel Payne. Can oh you gosh. imagine? Well, you're probably like, well, I'm sure it would have been cool. Why do you say that? And it's because she's a freaking rabble rouser, which we'll get into more. Like, if you can't already tell, like, we're really excited about Ethel Payne. Uh, she's kind of a journalism hero. Um, But so after starting her full time job at the Chicago Defender, she quickly makes her mark. And in 1952, her story on the adoption crisis among African-American babies won her an Illinois Press Association Award for Best News Stories. And she also quickly established her complete disinterest in fluff pieces. Don't assign Ethel a feature story on. Because even when she was assigned a fluff piece, she would still find the hard news angle in it and find a way to insert her 
views on the topic. And that's probably why by 1953, uh, her press compatriots referred to her as a, a newsman's newsman, kind of like, you know, a comedian's comedian. She was a newsman's newsman. Now, sensing her ambition and also that instinct for hard news, the Chicago Defender needed someone to take over in its Washington bureau. So in 1953, they're like, Ethel, head on out to D.C. It's only going to be you. You will be a one-person bureau, <laughs> but you can do it. And they, uh, I, I love the fanfare with which the Chicago Defender announced Ethel going to Washington. On the front page, the headline read, Miss Ethel Payne, one of the Chicago Defender's crack news and feature writers, has been assigned to Washington. Yeah. Cue celebratory trumpets. Yeah, and she would later go on to talk about how having a seat at the table, so to speak, really forced the mainstream white media to not only hear about and acknowledge, but also report on issues of civil rights that they were completely ignoring. Um, one of the first things that she reported on was the fact that the Howard University Choir had been diverted away from performing during the Republicans' annual Lincoln Day dinner. And of course, the white press did not report this. There were a couple of choirs. One was from Emory. One was from... I think it was Duke University. Duke. And so Howard was the third. Well, the two white choirs get through just fine, but the Howard bus is diverted a couple of times. Because they want them to go into a special back entrance. And this outraged pain. And so she reported on it, forcing other people to finally recognize, like, oh, okay, well, I guess there are issues that we are ignoring. Yeah, and... (laughs) This is Eisenhower's term that she is stepping into and right on the heels of the Howard University incident during all of this uh, Lincoln Day celebrating that the Republican Party was doing. She was outraged at Sherman Adams, who was Ike's chief of staff, because he apparently specially requested for a blackface performer at another Lincoln event. And she sent him a telegram. I mean, this woman has like barely been in D.C. like a week and she is sending a telegram to the president's chief of staff, basically saying, listen, there could have been a better way to represent black people on, quote, such an occasion more dignified and in keeping with the progress of the race. I mean, she clapped back. (laughs) Well, I mean, you also have to keep in mind what she herself was facing while she was walking the streets of Washington, D.C. I mean, she had to deal with cabs not picking her up, not being admitted to restaurants. Um, When she was traveling to cover stories, she had to stay in private homes instead of hotels, particularly in the South. There's one story um, where she was staying in a white professor friend's house and rocks were thrown through the window. The professor ended up getting evicted from his own apartment. Um, simply because he allowed her to stay there. And she wasn't afraid to speak or rather write her mind about the civil rights issues that were really starting to bubble up at the time. I mean, when Brown versus the Board of Education, a Supreme Court decision was handed down in 1954, she wasn't kicking up her heels about it. She was distraught and called it a poor compromise because they did not 
uh, stipulate a timeline for integration. So she was like, there's no timeline. And so this is going to be a mess because we're going to have to go state by state now and protests will happen. I mean, and she predicted all of this stuff that did happen. And she also had this prescient instinct about the civil rights movement as it was developing. She was one of the first to spotlight the significance of Rosa Parks and even MLK. She was like, there's this preacher in Mm -hmm. Atlanta. He's 27 years old and watch out for him. Well, yes, she was one of the first to note how the clergy, the black clergy, were sort of leading the way in this civil rights movement. And she was also, though, critical of MLK. It's not like she gave him a free pass, but she did voice concerns about airing laundry in a way that would attract the white press's attention. She wanted to definitely support leaders like MLK, and she wanted him to succeed, but she also wanted to do her due diligence of being a critical reporter who could analyze the situation. But there was that concern that if the white press catches wind of any criticisms, they might just run with it and not give him a seat at the table. And that's something, too, that's so uh, so fascinating about the role of the black press at the time and particularly the the handful of them who were in Washington because there were all these separate conversations that would be happening within these black newspapers. I mean, that was their function since, mm-hmm. what, 1827. But like you said, it's like they could speak but not too loudly so as to not attract too much attention. Well, we'll come back to that in just a second. But we should note that she probably covered and participated in more civil rights events than any other journalist at the time. I mean, she she was there for the events that were happening. In 1956, she was there for the Montgomery bus boycott and the desegregation efforts at the University of Alabama. In 1957, she was in Arkansas for uh, the Little Rock Nine. And I think that's where she was staying in the professor's home and got mm. the rock thrown in the window. Fast forward to 1963, and she's hopping into uh, the activism herself. She demonstrated in Birmingham. She participated in the March on Washington. And two years later, she marched from Selma to Montgomery to demand voting rights. Yeah, and she unintentionally, question mark, made civil rights a national issue when During a press conference with President Eisenhower, she asked when he would ban segregation and interstate travel. And he was none too pleased. I mean, this was not just a black press issue. Everybody reported on how angry Eisenhower got and how he used clipped tones and clipped words with her. Uh, This effectively moved civil rights into the national news cycle, and it drove Eisenhower, on a more personal note, to boycott Ethel Payne. I think in the rest of her time, the couple of years that she was still in the press corps, he just answered maybe two of her questions in her remaining time. Yeah, and and I believe that happened in 1958 when he he got his feathers all ruffled. And when I was first reading this, I was like, wait, so what, what, why did him getting annoyed set off national headlines and like the Washington Post and all of these bigger newspapers? And then I read his exact response and was like, oh, so in response to her question of just like, okay, when are you going to like, uh, you know, enforce 
desegregation of interstate travel, he said, quote, the administration is trying to do what it thinks and believes to be decent and just in this country. Okay, following you, Ike. But then he says, and it's not in the effort to support any particular or special group of any kind. Oh, all right. So you are framing the African-American community as a special interest group. And with that, civil rights becomes a national conversation. It's mm-hmm. not just happening within the black press anymore. It's funny, though, because both Ethel Payne and Alice Dunnigan had annoyed the president at these press conferences with these these gal reporters, as their colleague Louis Laudier called them. Yeah, he was so dismissive of Alice and Ethel. But at the same time, too, I mean, remember, yeah, that Ethel and Alice are in Washington at the same time. And I mean, talk about personality differences. You have Alice Dunnigan, who was so much more reserved. And then Ethel comes in and she's such a bulldozer. And when that incident with Eisenhower happened, the black press freaked out. They accused her of being overly assertive because it was, again, it was that issue of like, okay, we can't, we can't make too many waves. Don't like act out because it's taken so much for us to even get in the room in Washington. But she did not care at all about likability. Um, she had a great quote saying, I admit it. I was obnoxious, stubborn, and absolutely impossible to work with, impervious to all suggestions as to how to behave with civility. But when you're a black reporter, man or woman, that's part of your job. Yeah, I mean, but there were other reporters as part of that press corps who were saying that that question should have been asked anyway. And instead of being like, tisk tisk, Ethel, we're like, hey, why weren't the rest of you asking these questions? And because of her work and because of how political she was and because of how involved she was, she was the only woman invited to LBJ's office for the signing of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. He only invited people who were important and critical to the civil rights movement. And she was one of those people. She ended up actually getting two of the pins that he used to sign those acts. Um, and. You mentioned earlier about how she wasn't necessarily an objective journalist as much as she claimed that she didn't have bias. But, I mean, she it was never really her goal. Like you talked about, I mean, her goal was to whether whether she, you know, kind of uh, was blind to her own biases. She was really driven to uncover the truth. And in talking about that, she once said, The privilege of being a White House correspondent, wasn't that enough? Why couldn't I be quiet and not stir things up? Well, I didn't think that was my purpose. If you've lived through the black experience in this country, you feel that every day you're assaulted by the system. You're either acquiescent, which I think is wrong, or else you just rebel and you kick against it. Yeah. And she says, I wanted to constantly, constantly, constantly hammer away, raise the questions that needed to be raised. And she later said that, you know, I was part of the problem if I didn't speak up. So she felt compelled to speak up. This is a woman who had wanted to be a civil rights lawyer for the specifically for the poor and disenfranchised. So, you know, she's made quite the name for herself. She's an incredibly successful reporter. And so the Chicago Defender actually sends her overseas to be their international reporter. So she goes back across the ocean and lands in Vietnam on Christmas Day, 1966. She was the first African-American woman reporter to do this. 
Well, I mean, she was the first member of the black press to go to Vietnam, period, too. I mean, and it was super rare for just a female correspondent, period, to A, exist, but then also be in a war zone. And her reporting over there of the situation for African-American troops in the war was so important because back in the United States, the community was really divided over Vietnam because of the irony of U.S. soldiers being over there fighting to allegedly free a people while its own people had to fight tooth and nail for equality. But at the same time, Ethel Payne was not overtly critical of the war because this was the first time the army was fully integrated. And she considered the black soldiers, quote, free of racial barriers. Well, part of that was that a lot of reporters at the time, a lot of black reporters at the time were encouraged by their home papers to try to gloss over any potential racism or segregation that was still lingering. They wanted to present a better picture to the people back home um, in order to support the war, in order to support African-American soldiers. She would later go on to say that she regretted not being more critical of the war. Yeah. And and after Vietnam, I mean, she just continues traveling. She reports on the Asian Africa Summit in Indonesia. She travels to Ghana with President Nixon. Um, and side note on that, when I think it was was it Kissinger? He specifically requested her. He said he wanted that woman who gives me hell on CBS to accompany him. Oh, my God. I love it. Um, And she ended up going to China with Susan Sontag and a group of other people. And they were, I think, one of, if not the first group of Americans who went into China, like who were even allowed in China at that time. Uh, But in the 1970s, she ends up finally retiring from the Chicago Defender. They tried to make her um, essentially like manager of the local news operation. She was just like, I can't do this. I'm not into this local stuff. Sorry. But she's then hired on by CBS and becomes the first black female news commentator for a major radio and TV network. And I think it was in an interview with Gwen Ifill, the author of one of these fantastic books about black women journalists, talks about how um, there was a well-known black male newscaster who told this author that I saw... Um, Ethel Payne on television, and I knew I could do that too. And that story just gives me goosebumps because we talk all the time about like role models and seeing yourself represented. And not only is this a black person feeling like I can achieve something in a white dominated industry, but it's a man seeing an incredibly inspiring woman on screen too. If you see it, you can be it, Caroline. That's right. And as she was uh, working for CBS, she also continued expanding her reach with syndicated columns. Um, So she was a well-known name around the country, um, and she died in 1991. And there was a quote that she gave talking about how she had a box seat on history. And she was like, "I I like to think that I helped change things. Yeah, she she did. She for sure wanted to be remembered as an agent of change. And without a doubt, she was. Yeah. I mean, the the only sad part about it is how unsung she has been. Um, But we should also note about the black press at the time. After the civil rights movement, it really starts to fade from relevance as these larger newspapers start hiring the best and brightest black journalists 
and they begin actually covering civil rights and other African-American relevant issues. And then on top of that, you have the growing success of Ebony and Jet magazines that kind of pushes these uh, these black newspapers out of business. I mean, because you then have higher ad rates. I mean, now we're just getting into the weeds of how um, journalism <laughs> operations work. But essentially, they were Ethel and her counterparts did such a good job. They kind of put the black press out of business in a lot of ways. But you see sort of the repeated reemergence of a vocal black press, so to speak, nowadays, not to use the word nowadays and sound like an old, but you have all of these incredible voices emerging online on Twitter. You've got The Root, which I love to read, um, that is bringing up issues that are relevant to communities of color that, again, the mainstream press is not paying the same attention to. Yeah, I mean, and... The media might have changed, but I think that the voices are getting louder. I mean, because it's also not just journalists and established uh, thinkers like uh, Jamil Smith, but you also just have the existence of black Twitter. I mean, that it's I mean, there's that level of organizing that is happening. It's just more digital than IRL. Yeah. And I, I think that. And I don't want to put words in Ethel's mouth. I'm sure she would be more than she happy to spit them out. She would be more than happy to speak for herself. Um, but I think she would be really excited by the social justice landscape today. I mean, she was absolutely an agenda journalist because, I mean, the truth is you do have to change people's hearts and minds from the ground up. Yes. Yes. When you get Supreme Court rulings and legislation that is the ultimate goal. But first, you have to do a lot of mind changing. And that was that was her goal. She wanted to change people's lives. Yeah. I mean, and and also, too, I mean, Supreme Court decisions and legislation, that's not where it stops. I mean, think about her reaction to Brown. I mean, just being so um, so upset at almost how toothless it was. But speaking of <laughs> Ethel Payne being alive today. Oh, man, I wish she was on Twitter. Oh, God, I know. I had the same thought. It'd be great. Or Tumblr. Whew. Well, listeners, now I want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on all of this? Have you ever heard of Ethel Payne before? Are there people that we didn't talk about, figures in the black press that we should have mentioned uh, that we didn't? Let us know. Help us fill in all of the pieces of this story that all of us need to know so much more about. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we have a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Rachel in response to our miscarriage interview with Dr. Jessica Zucker. She says, hey, CNC, it's me, the gal who stopped taking spironolactone so she could get pregnant. Well, conceive I did, but it quickly ended in an ectopic pregnancy. I opted to have surgery as treatment, and literally the first time I looked at my phone in recovery, I saw that the I had a miscarriage episode had dropped. It took me two weeks to bring myself to listen to the episode, but I'm so glad that I did. While my loss was early on, it was certainly traumatic with emergency major surgery and the loss of one of my fallopian tubes. Although I didn't know that I was pregnant until I knew that something was wrong, I still had to grieve the disappointment and the perceived failure of my otherwise healthy and somewhat youthful body and the loss of a crucial part of my reproductive system. 
Something that I thought would be so natural and easy was suddenly a disaster. I have found refuge in the support of friends, family, and lady coworkers because when you disappear for a week, at least key people in the office have to know the whole story. When I tell my story, I always say that the women need to discuss the issues more. I mentioned to my husband that what happened to us is rare. His response: No, it's not. All the articles I've read say it's about one in fifty pregnancies end in ectopic. One in fifty—that is so much more common than I ever would have expected. Pregnancy loss in any way is a very real possible outcome of conception, and I just keep thinking that if we had been hearing about it in a real and honest matter our whole lives, we would have been better equipped to deal with the situation. Thank you for the interview with Dr. Zucker. It could not have come to me at a better time. I'm sorry for that traumatic experience you had to go through, but we really appreciate you sharing your story. So I've got a letter here from Kim about our episode on NASA's hidden women, and she writes, "I wanted to comment on the word hidden in your podcast title. You were sad that these amazing women aren't household names, and some of them were impossible to research. This is a problem inherent in STEM fields. We don't watch science like we watch sports." Great accomplishments aren't often labeled great until we can look at them through the lens of history, and much of the work is done behind closed doors or at private companies. So your podcast is a great example of something I tell the women engineers around me: don't let your history be forgotten. Write it down. Talk to people, even if it's complicated. Think of the ways you could explain to a first grader what it is you're doing to make the world a better place. I'm an electrical engineer in the aviation industry. What what? I help figure out how to make cockpit displays, radios, and sensors work together, and I love all caps my job. But growing up, I wasn't sure what electrical engineers did. I liked physics and had a hunch I could make it. It was a gutsy decision, but it should have been an obvious choice. Telling our stories and all the other ones like Katherine Johnson's will make us less hidden and will help all of the next girls know that they're taking the right steps into STEM. And I couldn't agree more, Kim. And listeners, now we'd love to hear from you. Momstaff at howstuffworks.com is our email address, and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about Ethel Payne and the Black Press, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 